Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from Brazil, France, the United States, and a see you in hell from Germany. All right, going to start out this week with Brazilian news. Uh, the news is that earlier this week, the Brazilian Congress has recommended that its president, Jair Bolsonaro, uh, face criminal charges, and not just any kind of criminal charges, but uh, charges of crimes against humanity. Now, what's happening here is that the Brazilian Congress uh, held a series of hearings over the last several months regarding the president's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. And what they're saying is that he botched it so terribly and did it, you know, not just like botched it like, oh, he messed up, but that he systemically and intentionally failed to handle the pandemic in such a way as to protect Brazil's citizens. Specifically, their claim is that the president and his administration systemically ignored the needs of Brazil's indigenous populations uh, who have disproportionately suffered uh, from death, injury, and other consequences of the pandemic, uh, which is also true, of course, the, that has been an undue burden uh, faced by this part of Brazil's population. And so this part of Brazil's Congress is claiming that these constitute crimes against humanity, uh, which the president could face actual criminal prosecution for. Uh, they actually do intend to submit these charges to The Hague, uh, where the International Criminal Court rests. Uh, and what this means is that um, Bolsonaro could conceivably actually be drawn up on charges of crimes against humanity in The Hague uh, less than a year from the upcoming Brazilian presidential election, which is uh, fall, well, Northern Hemispheric fall next year um, in 2022. At the very least, uh, his being drawn up for criminal charges in this capacity is probably going to hurt his election campaign vastly. Uh, there's a real chance that he might face some actual consequences here. Or the alternative is that he might see the writing on the wall and know that it's uh, time to pull out all the stops and actually try to stage uh, a coup. Uh, he has already attempted this earlier this year um, on Brazil's Independence Day. Uh, but there's a possibility that he could engage in something a little bit more radical or a little bit more potentially disruptive uh, to Brazilian democracy. Now we're going to have to see. Moving now to France, uh, I'm going to update you on the French presidential elections, uh, which are not for a while, um, but there has been a rising candidate on the French right, uh, and it is not a Le Pen, uh, which is the big newsworthy part of this. Uh, instead, it is a fascistic sort of political commentator type person. Uh, think about him, you know, if you're from the United States or from the Anglosphere in general. Think about him as a sort of uh, elderly Tucker Carlson. Uh, his name is Eric Zemmour. Uh, he's a fascist political commentator and pundit, and he is now polling in these French uh, potential presidential primary elections uh, neck and neck with Marianne Le Pen, uh, which is an extremely big deal um, because it means that he is potentially supplanting the family of the French right wing in the French presidential elections. Now, France, like many countries, has a two-step presidential election. First, there is an election with a whole bunch of candidates, as many as qualify. And then the top two vote-getters go to the actual final presidential election. Now, in several previous presidential elections in France, 
A. Le Pen, either Marine Le Pen or her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, uh, have made it to the second round. And now this was terrifying in itself, right? You know, these are quasi-fascist uh, politicians, especially Jean-Marie Le Pen. Uh, Marianne Le Pen has been distancing herself from her father's legacy a little bit, but she's, she's still extremely right-wing. Uh, but what this means is that they are being unseated, potentially, as the uh, torchbearers of the extreme right wing in France. And uh, this newer, somewhat outsidery candidate is potentially supplanting them in that position. Uh, Zemmour talks about the supposed great replacement of white French people. Uh, for those of you paying attention to uh, right wing rhetoric in the United States, this, uh, this should not be a surprise. This is exactly how the right wing talks about immigration. Uh, he also uh, has recently started to uh, pose with guns, uh, which he actually points at the press uh, during photo ops. Uh, this happened last week. It's one of the most uh, creepy things that Zamor has done recently, that is. Uh, the point here is that uh, Zamor might actually be able to succeed uh, where the Le Pens have failed uh, because they have this track record of making it to the second round and then seriously losing to whatever more mainstream candidate they're facing in the second round. The idea is that Zamor, being somewhat more of an outsider, or at least not like coming from an extremely established political family, might be able to succeed where they've failed. And if that happens, then it could mean that France, one of the most powerful countries in the world, one of the most powerful countries in Europe, could have an, an actually right-wing president. And France has an extremely powerful presidential system. Uh, not unlike the United States. Uh, this is going back to the presidency of Charles de Gaulle, uh, who only agreed to become president um, in order to stop French political turmoil after World War II uh, in exchange for changing the constitution uh, to suit his needs and desires, uh, which was for, you know, a an imperial president, uh, one could call it. So if that is taken up by an actually extremely right-wing figure, like Zamor, for example, um, it could be really disgusting. Turning to the United States, we have news that a school district in Texas uh, seems to intend to teach Holocaust denialism in its classrooms. Uh, this is coming from NBC. Uh, the school district in question is in South Lake, uh, which is a suburb of Dallas, Texas. Uh, and this is because of a new law in Texas, uh, House Bill 3979, uh, which was intended as an anti-critical race theory bill. Uh, now, for those of you who are coming to this particular terrible party very late, um, critical race theory is the latest uh, moral panic that the right wing has tried to stir up around education in the United States. Their claim is that uh, liberals, leftists, communists have taken over education and that they are teaching children critical race theory. Uh, by this, usually the right means that they are teaching children about the horrors and evils of slavery, racism, and other structural oppressions in the United States, uh, which of course being the right wing, they don't want children to learn about. Uh, obviously, they're presumably assuming that these children are white because most non-white children do not need to be taught about this. They experience it in their everyday lives. Um, but so that's what the right wing is doing. That's the, the point of these bills. And in Texas, the particular language of this bill suggests uh, that teachers need to, you know, teach the controversy, quote unquote, right? They need to present, quote unquote, both sides of controversial topics. Uh, but the problem that these teachers are encountering and which they're raising to the school board, and this is where this report is coming from, teachers are saying like, well, 
like I'm teaching, you know, number the stars this this semester. You know, I, I'm reading Anne Frank's diary. Like, am, am I supposed to offer another opinion about the Holocaust? Am I supposed to offer another opinion about the Nazis? And in recordings that NBC obtained, uh, members of the administration of this school district said, yeah, I guess, yeah, yes, you do need to provide an alternative point, an alternative position on things like the Holocaust, the Nazis, and fascism. So this is the, you know, anti-CRT fervor uh, coming to its logical conclusion. We have people who work for the government of the United States, people who work for state and local governments, arguing to teachers that actual Nazi ideology, potentially Holocaust denialism, needs to be taught in public schools in the United States, a country that defeated the Nazis. Of course, the bill's authors, you know, in the Texas state government, deny that this is what the bill says. However, the point here isn't what their intent was. The point here is that we are seeing now, already, actual school administrators and educators finding themselves thinking, do I have to teach about the supposed positive side of enslavement? Do I have to teach children those things? Do I have to teach children, you know, I, I guess like Holocaust denialism? Do I have to teach them about what Hitler did positively for Germany? This is an actual nightmare uh, result of the kinds of changes that we've seen in our political discourse, uh, especially around education uh, and especially around race in the United States. Uh, unfortunately, we are going to have to continue to fight against this kind of change to the way our educational system works. Finally, in the United States, we have news that Steve Bannon is potentially going to face criminal charges. Uh, the news of this comes from all sorts of sources, uh, the New York Times, NBC. Specifically, what's happening is that the January 6th Select Committee in the United States House has recommended to the Justice Department that Bannon be held in contempt, in criminal contempt, uh, for failing to respect their subpoena, uh, that Bannon provide information about his involvement in the Trump administration and also his involvement and um, discourse with Donald Trump around the January 6th attempted coup earlier this year. Uh, potentially, Bannon could face one year in in jail uh, and or a $100,000 fine uh, for his failure to respect the subpoena. Trump himself, uh, meanwhile, uh, has also sued the January 6th committee uh, in order to prevent it from accessing documents related to his presidency. Uh, Bannon is claiming that that has something to do with his refusal to respect the subpoena, but the fact is that those are entirely separate legal cases and he doesn't really have anything to stand on here. The issue here is that this could either be a big old story, you know, it could be Steve Bannon finally cracks and tells all about his involvement with the Trump administration, with the planning of the coup, uh, with the creeping use of fascist ideology and perspectives, which Bannon himself was the architect of in the early years of the Trump presidency and also during the Trump campaign. Or it could be a pretty savvy legal tactic on the part of Trump and his allies, like Bannon, uh, to try to draw out this process as long as they possibly can. Sue and counter-sue, appeal and counter-appeal, until either people forget about this, because, you know, a headline, January 6th Select Committee submits former presidential aid for criminal contempt for refusing a subpoena, 
is not nearly as interesting a headline as Former President Donald Trump attempted a coup against the government. Alternately, of course, they might just be hoping that uh, all of these charges, cases, the whole committee will be dropped in 2022 if and when the Republicans take back the House, which is a very serious possibility. Finally, I'm going to close out this episode with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. Uh, This week, we got an interesting one for you. Uh, Last year at this time, I commemorated the uh, Nuremberg executions, uh, so I'm not going to go into those super in-depth. You can check out the episode from this time last year. That would be episode 29, which is uh, fortunately titled Nuremberg. Uh, But just as a refresher, the Nuremberg executions occurred this week in history on the 16th of October, 1946. Uh, Ten Nazi officials, uh, including von Ribbentrop, uh, the Nazi Minister of Foreign Affairs, were executed following their trial for crimes against humanity. Uh, Goering, uh, who is the head of the Luftwaffe and a prominent government minister, was going to be the 11th uh, person executed at that event, uh, but managed to commit suicide before his execution. Uh, So rather than go super into depth about that again, because, you know, I'm trying not to repeat myself here, there's a lot of dead fascists to get into, I want to talk about something a little bit more interesting, a little bit more unusual, uh, something unlike what I've talked about before. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Blutfahn, the blood flag, Uh, which was a symbol of the Nazi party since their uh, first attempt to take over the government of Germany uh, in the Beer Hall Putsch, uh, which was an attempted coup staged by Hitler uh, and the other members of the Nazi party in 1923. Um, During this event, 16 Nazis were killed uh, by German security officials. Uh, And one of those guys was a man or a well, a young man uh, named Andreas Baureidl, uh, one of these 16 Nazis. When he was shot in the abdomen, he fell on the Nazi flag that he and one of his compatriots were handling during the putsch, and his blood stained it. Now, Baureidl and these other 16 Nazis became major important uh, martyrs in the Nazi you know, mythos about itself, although they are not the initial like the main original Nazi martyr. Uh, Hitler commemorated their deaths in his memoir, uh, which he wrote in prison after this putsch. This is uh, Hitler's famous Mein Kampf, My Struggle, um, which is one of the vehicles he used to gain power and to spread his ideology. Uh, But the flag that Baureidl bled on, the blood flag, became for the Nazis a symbol of sacrifice and of dedication. And it was uh, trotted out at many a uh, ceremony, event, signing, speech, all that sort of stuff. And it was last seen this week in history, uh, the 18th of October, 1944, uh, specifically at a ceremony uh, commemorating the foundation of a civilian militia uh, to uh, repel the Allied and Soviet invasions of Germany. Uh, So uh, it faced an ignominious end, uh, commemorating Nazis to die for their lost and disgusting cause, uh, much like its origin. So, Blutfahn, and also those executed at Nuremberg, we will see you in hell.
All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. My name is Craig Johnson, and I'm thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please spread the word. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. If you really enjoyed the podcast, uh, please head over to my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com is where you can reach me for questions, uh, corrections, things that you'd like to see talked about on the podcast. All right, I will talk to you next week. <laughs>